you will welcome my friend, Lori Gordon, as she reads our teaching text today. Our teaching text today comes from Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. There's a history of suffering that began when our fathers fell. And here we are in the waiting. It's been a long night in Israel. It's been a long night in
Kristen, thank you, Bellwin. Grace and peace be with you, Mars Hill. Um, I can't really see you today, but I can feel you with me. And I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being at home who are watching online. Grace and peace to you as well. Um, quick uh, intro here. There's a game like to play around this time of year in friend groups, in family living rooms, and at office parties. And here's the premise. You buy a nice gift. You bring it to said gathering. You draw a number and you get to pick a gift in the order of the number that you drew. Easy, right? Charitable, orderly, and kind. <laughs> Except not, because there's one catch to this game. When it's your turn, you have an option. You can either pick a brand new gift to open or you can steal someone else's. <laughs> and if it's a really nice gift, you don't just leave them empty-handed. No, no. You also leave that person befuddled, confused, confounded, and now in a place where they too are plotting a heart-crushing move. Now, say you really loved the gift that you picked. It was warm, practical, it smelled good. In a gift exchange like that one, I've observed three postures as the game progresses. One, there's tempered delight because the person loves what they have, but you can see them clutching the box a little too tightly. Or scooching, yes, Lori Gordon, or scooching the bag <laughs> behind their chair, hoping people forget it's there. Because on the inside, they know that it could be taken away at any moment. Okay, so that's one, tempered delight. Two, there's resigned detachment. Even if they are a little thrilled with the gift that they have, even if they're hopeful because they do not expect that they'll get to keep it and they don't want to love it too much. 
So you can see discouragement on their faces because they know it's going to get taken at any moment. The gift is right there out in the open for the taking, a kind of anticipated disappointment, right? The third observation that I make in this game is that at the end, there's this reaction that I call subtle downplay. The person loves the gift that they are leaving with a lot. But they'll talk about anything else besides the gift or they'll pretend they don't like it as much as they really do because they know someone else in the room is walking away with a banana hanger. <laughs> and then I take a closer look. I take a closer look at these reactions and now we are not talking about dirty Santa anymore, are we? All of a sudden we're face to face with familiar postures in ourselves that we recognize at times in times of waiting, whether that's for the doctor's appointment or the recovery or the phone call, or the interview, or the deposit, or the therapy session. All of a sudden, the games we play hit too close to home. In this third week of Advent, Mars Hill, we're taking a look at joy but not how to conjure it up on our own. Then we'd be talking about happiness instead. You see, there's a difference. Happiness is fleeting. It comes and goes. It's circumstantial based on what we might have experienced in the course of a week or a day or an hour or a minute. Think about how you felt walking into the room a momentary reaction. Maybe because you were happy that no one could see you, maybe because you can't see anyone. But happiness is also pursued by us. Think about the Declaration of Independence. The pursuit of happiness, not the pursuit of joy. Happiness, joy on the other hand, when we look at it in the context of the Bible, it can be really boiled down a few different ways, but I'm gonna call it exceeding sustaining gladness. Exceeding sustaining gladness. And it differs from happiness in this way. It's permanent. Joy is permanent and it's permanently available. Joy is transcendent. It is a fruit of God's spirit. So it both goes beyond and intercepts our circumstances. And then finally, it's given. It's given by God. It is not something that we have to chase after or run ourselves rugged trying to obtain. God gives it to us. So we're talking about how to wait well when joy is available, both now and not yet. Thank you, Pastor Troy, week one. When we're waiting in tension, with intention. Thank you, Pastor Denise. 
When there's a gift of God available and we're the ones who aren't present. I was thinking about week three of Advent and anticipating talking about joy, and I panicked a little bit. I'll be honest with you. There are a few people in the room when that happened. I panicked a little because I thought about an interview I saw with Brene Brown and Oprah Winfrey back in 2013. And as a researcher, Brene Brown was describing an interview she did where this person said the following. They said, my whole life, I never got too excited, too joyful, about anything. I stayed right in the middle because if things didn't work out, I wasn't devastated. And if they did work out, I wasn't surprised. And I panicked, church, and I thought, wait, was that me? Did I, was I the one in the interview with Brene Brown? Were those my words because they hit just a little too close to home, in the middle? this person said, in Advent, in the now and not yet. See, what they were describing was foreboding joy. Foreboding joy. Brene Brown describes it this way, when we lose our tolerance for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. We try to beat vulnerability to the punch. And in that way, our joy has been warped by tempered delight when your business is booming, but you don't want anyone to know because you know how quickly things change. You know that at any moment, the numbers could come back and you're done. Resigned detachment, choosing to show no outward emotion at all when it comes to that new opportunity or job prospect because it could be taken away at any moment. They could choose someone else. Reserved smiles or hugs for your spouse, your friends, your kids, your parents because you don't want to feel too vulnerable should you get hurt. Subtle downplay, you love being a caregiver, but you, want, you don't want to gush over your kids while someone else suffers the loss of a child. You don't want to talk about how amazing parenting is when you know someone right next door or down the street or in your office comes to work every day crying. You have friends struggling with insurance or mental health, and you are the healthiest you've been in this season, but you feel like you can't talk about it. You don't want to be insensitive to others' suffering. These are all forms of foreboding joy, joy that is withheld, smushed, stuffed, ignored, hidden, maybe even forced in some cases. And I don't blame us. How in the world, how in this world, wrought with piled on disappointment and devastation and corruption and injustice, do we wait well with joy? It seems rude, scandalous 
even. I'm sure our brothers and sisters in Mayfield, Kentucky would want to know. Our brothers and sisters in Oxford, they'd want to know the answer to this question. My friends with cancer want to know. Grieving widowers, overworked teachers and healthcare professionals, they want to know. Underappreciated law enforcement, the unlawfully imprisoned, the victims of hate crimes, they all want to know. Orphans, refugees, single parents, and starving artists want to know how in this world are they supposed to wait with joy? The joy that is spirit-breathed, long-lasting, and the gift, the gift of God to us. The prophet Zephaniah was familiar with this question in a way. The text that Lori read for us this morning. In 7th century BCE reigned King Josiah, known as the last great king of Judah. The Bible describes him as righteous and one who walked in the ways of David, but Jerusalem was in disarray. Idolatry and corruption on behalf of the priests. Injustice. People were isolated from their homes and their sense of community. Violence and fraud were commonplace, and so God speaks judgment through Zephaniah. For the first two and a half chapters, Zephaniah declares correction in God's anger upon the nations. And then we get to verse 14 in chapter 3, and we go from serious judgment to singing. So what do we see Zephaniah call Israel to in the midst of dark, dismal days? is we see the prophet call the people to wait for a day to come. Look at verse 16. We're on that day. It shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not. Where foreboding joy turns to forecasting joy. Anticipating and looking ahead in hope to what was to come. And that was done by forecasting three commands that I want us to look at this morning. The first was this, it was to sing. Our teaching team is studying a beautiful book called Feasting on the Word for this Advent series. And in it, it talks about how singing interrupts the environment here for the people of Israel. Singing interrupts corruption and devastation and injustice. If you look at our Advent calendars here this morning, the pink candle interrupts the rest with joy on this Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete meaning joy in Latin. There's something different about this one. There was singing that interrupts the prophet's judgment on behalf of the word of God. What I find so interesting, though, is how the singing is described if we're reading and looking closely. Zephaniah commands that they sing aloud and rejoice, but before the relief. Before the liberation. Before the realization of God's salvation, not after or in response to it. 
I haven't talked a lot about my church that I grew up at home, but this reminded me of some of the songs I heard in the black church growing up. They were played in minor keys, song like Wade in the Water, or Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And I could still hear my grandmother singing, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. My family, my ancestors, they sang these songs that preempted God's action. Building a bridge from the present moment, the present shackles, the present injustice, the present oppression to the future promise. They sang before the liberation. But second, what I notice is that the singing is loud. The hymn here in Zephaniah takes after the tradition of women in the Bible who publicly serve their communities by leading songs of celebration and lament. And the way one author describes these women's songs that they were leading was that they were often high-pitched, I'm not going to do it, high-pitched shouts, just you imagine, whatever you imagine, that's what it was, high-pitched shouts, and so here... Israel, too, is called to sing aloud and to shout. To shout, to rejoice out loud. There's a similar command in Isaiah where the prophet says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say again, In that day, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion. Marcel, I've been with you for a little over two years now. And I know where... Hey, I'm so glad to be with you too, whoever did that. Unless I heard something, in which case we're going to keep going. Okay. <laughs> but, what, but what I've noticed in those two years is that we have varying personalities, which I think is a beautiful part about who we are as a church. But let me also acknowledge this. Some of you have grown up in traditions, perhaps, where the idea of shouting, or singing aloud, or dancing in the aisles, or doing anything more than being as quiet as a mouse, was seen as discouraged and disrespectful and disruptive. And so there might be a song of joy in you somewhere that doesn't just come through your throat in a whisper, but in your limbs and in your body and in your being. And you've just been holding back because you're like, this isn't how I was taught to do this. And I want to say to you this morning, there is freedom in Jesus' name to praise the Lord God Almighty. There is freedom to follow in the footsteps of our spiritual heritage and to shout unto the Lord and to dance like David danced. And so perhaps the invitation for you this morning is to let your joy come unhinged before God. You don't need my permission, but you have it. To sing, to rejoice.
There's something about choosing to sing in advance of what God has done and to follow in the footsteps of our spiritual ancestors who didn't quietly claim joy, but who shouted it. And again, in the black tradition, there was this, and there still is this longing for liberation. But I bring the fullness of myself to you, right? And so there's this loudness, there's this raucous praise, not because of the pain of that history, but because of the pain, in spite of the pain. It was a transcendent kind of joy that I experienced as a little girl that defied circumstances following the similar command in Philippians 4 when Paul, who is in prison, by the way, commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, not just on Sundays, not just when it's going well, not just when the report is good, not when we've taken our vitamins and feel like we can do it. Not just when we're hydrated and we're excited because the Wolverines won the game. You see what I mean? We got it in us. <laughs> Not just then, but always. He said, I will say rejoice. Question, first one for you this morning. What forecasted hope might be stirred in the waiting because of your rejoicing? What hope have you not claimed that is available to you? Just hanging in the balance of your rejoicing. The second command we see in this, in this passage is to do justice. Bless you. Verse 19, the Lord promises that at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise. This is really good news for the oppressed. This is really good news for the sick. This is really good news for the outcasts and the marginalized of society. God's action in the waiting is a promise that justice will be served. But here's what we need to remember, church. It's not just God that's coming and doing justice that we hold on to while we wait. Part of our waiting with joy is singing, but it's also acting justly. There's a part in Luke's gospel where John the Baptist is speaking to the crowds waiting to be baptized. Do you remember what he calls them? A brood of vipers. He then calls them to faithfulness, telling them to bear good fruit worthy of repentance. And then the crowd start asking him a bunch of questions. And the chief one is, what then should we do? What then should we do? And here's what he responds. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Waiting with joy, then, is more than just waiting with a feeling. Waiting with joy means actively joining in God's work of justice to bring freedom and liberation and good news to the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. Is one, and one thing that I am mourning 
in our cultural context these days is that it seems like whenever justice is talked about, it is joyless. Joy and justice were meant to go together to realize liberation on earth as it is in heaven, to do the work of writing the balances that are off kilter in our midst, to advocate for the least of these, the poor, the hungry, the widow, the orphan. Church, if our justice is joyless, then it may not be God's justice. So that, what then should we do in a season where cultural Christmas tells you to overspend and max out credit cards? Perhaps we are to live simply so that we have something to share. If you find yourself spinning from a place of being overly self-sufficient, what if you reprioritize your time to dedicate time to being in community and loving your neighbor and refusing to wait alone? Perhaps in your context, you know or have this feeling inside of the, that you have turned a blind eye to exploitation or oppressive business practices. And regardless of whether or not you are the boss or in charge, say something. Use your voice. Encourage truth. And maybe if you have to, leave. Kathy Beachberry says it very well. There's no getting to Bethlehem and the sweet baby in the manger without first hearing the rough prophet in the wilderness call us to repentance. So question, what then should you do? What then should you do? Where because of God's kindness... Are you being called to repent, to turn from something that's keeping you from living into the fullness of God's joy in this season of waiting, to join in the life-giving work of forecasting the hope of God's justice? The final call is to receive God's song. Just want you to think for a minute. Is there a song from your childhood that you can remember a parent or a grandparent singing over you. I immediately thought of a song that my dad used to sing to me. It's called Pretty Little Baby. Pretty little baby, she loves daddy. She loves daddy, she loves daddy. Pretty little baby, she loves daddy all day long. And now that song is sung by my dad to my kids. It's being passed down. There's certain songs that Dylan and I wrote specifically for our kids to sing over them because of who they are. And I wonder what happens when someone sings over us? What physically happens when someone sings over us? I imagine myself as a child in my room with my bed sheets covered in Mrs. Potts and Chip from Beauty and the Beast, pink and white striped, if you must know. I imagine myself in that bed, 
reclined and relaxed, my breathing slowing. I remember feeling safe and loved and adored. And I know that's a privilege. Not everyone feels that way when they're growing up. But there's something about a song meant just for us that disarms and unlocks and calls us into a secure kind of rest, isn't there? And then I see verse 17 in Zephaniah 3, where he says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud, there it is that word again, loud singing. In the waiting, God's presence was in the people's midst. With the injustices and corruption and idol worship, God was there. And the coming promise echoed the command Zephaniah called the people to. Not only were they to rejoice, get this, not only were they were to sing, but God would join them in their rejoicing and rejoice over them as well. See, where I think I miss out is that sometimes my experience of joy has one dimension. It lives on an earthly plane. And in that way, it's tempting for my joy to tiptoe and becoming this kind of circumstantial happiness. But we can't forget, church, there's also a canopy of joy above you and around you covering every single circumstance that you could experience in this life. That joy comes from the very mouth of God. And when we make space to receive the right song, not the song of a politician or the song of a single church leader or the song of an imperfect parent or the song of a news reporter or the songs of the notifications dinging on our phones, but when we posture ourselves to receive and actually believe there is a song of delight being sung over you, you can wait, you can wait in this world with joy unspeakable and sometimes inexplainable. Some of us this morning just need to know that our God delights in us. God delights in you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He's not just waiting to hear a desperate prayer float from your lips. He's not far off. He is in our midst, Mars Hill Bible Church, and he delights over you with his singing. It's delight. So our final question, what songs are you allowing to be sung over you in these days over and over again? Because the songs are on repeat are the songs we remember. Just like little Maggie Hatfield singing the songs her daddy sings to her, she remembers those. Are they the right ones? Do some need to be drowned out so that the ones Abba sings over you can be heard loud and clear? Church, God rejoices over us in God's fullness. God sent God's son, Jesus Christ, to us. He spared nothing. And so why would we not give ourselves fully to the goodness and the grace of this gift? Right now, even in chemo, even in the ICU bed, 
even alone in your bathroom with a box of tissues when you think no one's looking, even at the kitchen table with a relative who drives you up a wall with the promise of what is to come. Foreboding joy becomes forecasting joy, and we wait on that hope with joy. I actually love that it's darker in here than it usually is today. Because the reality is there is a season that's felt like a really cruel game of dirty Santa for some of us. It's dark. But I tell you what, I walked in and the lights were more beautiful than I ever thought they were. There's something about darkness, something about the mystery of God's joy when it meets darkness that catalyzes that joy even more. If you turn all the lights on all the time, then perhaps we start to lose the appreciation for the light that we have. So if you're in the dark, my encouragement to you, Marcel, is to notice. Notice the light. Notice how beautiful the light is. Vulnerably in this season, I have chosen to write down things I'm grateful for every single day because it's dark. As a discipline, not because it's easy to notice joy when it happens. There's a quote in our upstairs hallway at our home that says this from author John Steinbeck. What good is the warmth of summer without the cold of winter to give it sweetness? I gotta tell you, summer is so much sweeter living in the Midwest than it was growing up in Houston. And even though there are some really dark spots in our world, in our nation, and I'm guessing in your life as there are in mine, church, I must say, the light becomes brighter. Jesus went to the cross and Pastor Denise reminded us in a meeting recently that in his anguish he uttered these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He began to sing a song he began to sing a song that we find in its entirety in Psalm 22. But here's the thing, he didn't finish it. It started and he ended it with anguish, but that wasn't the entire song. There's more. There's God's holiness in that song and a call to remember him in that song and his righteousness and the fulfillment of his promise that he had done the good work in that song. And so as Jesus was dying, he left the stanza open for our lives, yours and mine, to finish the song in joy and hope. So we, we can wait with joy, Mars Hill. It is possible. I love the lines of that song Del and Kristen sang. He longs to lift your weary head and bring you home. So perhaps today you sing, perhaps you do justice and you turn from something else. Perhaps you just need to be reminded today that God delights in you and you receive God's song once and for all. Receive the gift and the hope of what God has promised. Amen.